Hello, and thank you so much for tuning in to Stable Connections, the podcast. Today's episode is joined by Joel Stewart, and he talks to us about shoeing horses starting at the young age of 12 in Australia, this being his first trip to the U.S. and what he thinks of it so far, and what he feels needs to change within the horse world. Hope you enjoy. Stable Connections is sponsored by Bay Mare Designs. Bay Mare Designs is a full-service branding and web design studio built for equestrian-owned businesses. Alicia combines her experiences within the design space and her passion for the horse world to create stunning, strategic designs that help you grow your small business. Learn more about how you can attract your dream clients through branding and web design. She services clients nationwide. Please visit www.bayamare.com baymaredesign.com and receive 10% off when you mention Stable Connections, the podcast. Stable Connections is sponsored by Instride Productions, videography and photography with the equestrian in focus. Whether you need marketing content or memories that last a lifetime, Instride Productions will capture your moment. Please visit www.instrideproductions.com. Well, my name is Joel Stewart. I'm from a small country town in the middle of New South Wales called Merriwall. It's a very small rural community. I grew up on a farm. Father's a farrier, blacksmith farrier. Mum's been a housewife. We've had horses all my life. I've been riding since I was two years old. My parents are really, really horses. So my father being a farrier, you know, following father's footsteps around, around the blacksmith shop and stuff when I was really an infant, four-year-old, swinging hammers as a four-year-old and then moving forward into riding and my father used to shoe a lot of racehorses so he would always get the slower racehorses he thought were very athletic. He'd bring them home because usually they're looking for a good home for these horses so he would bring them home and my mother would knock the grain out of them, give them a couple of weeks, he'd put the running reins on them and lunge them and I started riding off the trackers like six or seven years of age. So you know I've been around horses all my life. I think horsemanship is a really important part of my job. I've been full-time for over 34 years, full-time. I started shoeing when I was 12 because my father never had time. You know, the painter's house never gets painted first, right? So right. The so you were doing the family horses at a young age? I was doing my own horses. I vented to the old two-star level. It's now three-star level. I vented to that when I was a teenager and I played state-level polo cross at the same time. Horses have been my life forever, you know. Did you know at that young age that being a farrier was going to be your career? Not at all. I, I went to school, I did year 12, which is sixth form in the States. So finished school at like 17 and a half. I was writing for my results. I was, I was going to either go and be a, a marine biologist or a mathematician. I was a, Two very what, different things. For sure. I was very, <laughs> very mathematically driven. So a lot of my working career now, I'm very big on balancing horses for the individual horse. So the mathematical side of it is very important to me because, you know, Isaac Newton's laws of physics come into how I address balance on horses' feet every day of the week. So the mathematical side comes from that. I'm not very artistic. I can make nearly anything, but I, I can't think things up to, mm. to make them, you know. Yep. I'm not very artistic. I don't have an artistic flair in my body. But, but math comes easy. Math comes easy. You know, primary school, we had to write our own song with a recorder. Oh, wow. And out of a class of 35 kids, there was me and one other kid that had to reset that exam three times. I'm just not very artistic, you know. But yeah. I can make most things because I'm good with my hands. But 
I was yeah. lucky. Growing up on a farm, you learn lots of skills from, you know... Life skills. More life than skills, yeah. Playing a recorder. Like playing a recorder, yeah. <laughs> I feel like those skills come in a little bit more handy than being able to play some sort of flute. Oh, right? sure. It, it's, unfortunately, these days, my own children, I had three grown-up children, my own children didn't grow up with the same... Push to do those things? Yeah, well, they never grew up on a farm, like my wife's uh, town girl, so... We, we dated young, we broke up, we got back together. I dated a girl in the meantime that was very horsey and all we did was argue about horses. So <laughs> I worked out then that I didn't want my life to be arguing about horses because yep. I use lots of my patience every day with my with my job. So I don't want to argue with my wife, girlfriend, whatever about any of that. Horses because, still, yeah. So my wife's not horsey and, and my children, my youngest daughter's very horsey to a certain degree, but my kids never grew up on a farm, so, you know, we didn't have, I, I wore lots of hand-me-downs as a kid. I have an older brother and I got lots of hand-me-downs as a kid because we never had any money. Unfortunately, back then, or fortunately, unfortunately, however you look at it, there wasn't the availability of income that there is now. You know, globally, there's a lot more money available if you get off your butt and work hard, which is what I got taught to my father. You know, I was digging post holes with a shovel at 11 or 12 year old, crowbar and shovel, which my children have never done and lots of lots of kids that are around me are very unfortunately very entitled these days because where I live at the Gold Coast in Queensland is it's a very very wealthy area for the right people there's lots of people live there that don't have any money but they want the lifestyle you know, the Gold Coast has some of the best beaches in the world the water in the middle of winter is like 20 degrees which is I've been to San Francisco for a couple of days getting over jet lag when I got here and the water down there is freezing and it's nearly summertime here. At home, the water is twice as warm in the middle of our winter. So lots of international people come there. You can always spot the palms you know, when they come to the Gold Coast. They're very pale, but they will swim in the beach in the middle of winter because the water there is warmer than it is in England or anywhere around the, the Arctic. You know, it's, it's cold. The palms are the English. English. <laughs> so the palms are English people. Palms? Palms, yeah. Okay. I don't know where that comes from, yeah. but we call them poms in there. Most poms like palms or like P-O-M-S, poms. Poms. Hmm. poms. I'll have to look up what that means. Yeah, well, see, so most Australians, we, we call most Americans Yanks. And I know a lot of them are Yankees in the south and the north, that old-fashioned thing. But most Aussies, of my age anyway, we call most Americans Yanks. Yeah, <laughs> no, it's not derogatory. It's yeah. just it's a slang. We have lots of slang words, lots of slang words in Australia because a lot of heritage comes from the convict, you know. My great-great-great-grandfather came out on the First Fleet as a convict from England, apparently for stealing a silk handkerchief for his girlfriend at the time, so... Oh, wow. Yeah, no. What a gentleman. Yeah, well, <laughs> you know, we, we try and be romantic as we can, like... <laughs> what are Aussies known for? Uh, They're goofy. I feel like Australian people are usually... We're pretty funny. loose. Like, loose. we're pretty loose with our terminology. We're loose with our lives. We don't really care. Like, uh, free-range? Yeah, very free range, yeah. Like, where I grew up is a small country town. There's 2,000 people in the whole Shire. And it's not much bigger now. My generation are almost classed similar to the rednecks here. It's the same sort of thing. That The Aussie, Ocker Aussie, is very much like your hillbillies and the rednecks south of here, I guess. They're everywhere. I guess, yeah. They're in this everywhere. county, too. I feel like they're like rednecks are kind of freckled everywhere. Yeah, for sure. Well, that's, that's me. You know, I live in the Gold Coast. It's very progressive at the Gold Coast. There's lots of 
like the political scene the Gold Coast is very different where I grew up. I've never been on welfare in my life. My wife's never been welfare in my life. Worked for things. My children, uh, my my kids, 25, 23, and 21, have never been on welfare in their life. Oh, they're life. very close in age too. Two years apart. We had three kids under four. We got married married quite young, early 20s, and 26 years full time this year with my wife. Married. Woo! Yeah, it was hard work. I was working. We we made a choice. My wife was a hairdresser. But working for my father, I had a very good grounding as a farrier. We, in Australia, we have a trade system. So four years indentured apprenticeship, similar to what they do in England. You have to be that to be a farrier? Like not in, yeah, not in Australia. It's not a regulated industry down there. Uh, trades like electricians and plumbers and that are very regulated. Where you, you can go and buy tools, you can go and buy tools yourself and class yourself as a farrier. Similar to here, yeah. Very similar to here, but we, have a, we do have a regulated trade system. So when you become indentured, we have a trade school, you get a trade school. I, I was lucky enough to teach at trade school alongside my dad for over 13 years, which was which was great, you know. My, my father's very, very well respected. He's 80, very well respected farrier in the racing industry. Is he still doing it? No, unfortunately his knees are bone on bone, the cutlass is worn out and things are a lot, technology has brought us a lot more improvements in how we can get around our business, you know. Yep. Lots of, lots of, heavy lifting back in the day that we don't have to do the same now you know like a foot stand to put a horse's leg on my father never shot with a foot stand ever it's probably his knees his are shot, but yeah yeah <laughs> but you know and racehorses are hot when, when you're shooting racehorses in work they're hot so a lot of the stuff that we can do with horses now if you walk in and put a, a two-year-old colt that weighs 450 so like 900 pounds thousand pounds full of feed 16 and a half hands, if you try and pull their foot forward and put it on a, on a peg or a foot stand, you're going to have a fight with them and you'll probably lose. And then if the horse gets injured, then litigation and all that sort of stuff that wasn't around when my father was younger, but welfare of animals comes very foremost. In my business, welfare of animals is why I do this, why I've been doing so long. It's, it's hard work and it's hot and humid. The Gulf Coast, it's hot and humid. It gets like the 38 to 40 degrees in the middle of summer, 98% humidity. You walk out to go to work in the morning and the sweat beads off you're just you. wet instantly you're wet i go through four or five work shirts and a pair of couple of pairs of jeans every day in my day like it's so it's not worth changing it <laughs> yeah, <laughs> like well, you just stay wet and then you're just wet maybe wear some deodorant but yeah well the, the the gold coast because it's lots of the land around the gold coast it's it's hill at the back and water catchment runs out to the ocean lots of the gold coast land is easy runoff lots of swamp land and stuff so because everyone wants to live there because it's such a nice spot, most of the land that's left over is a swamp. So the horse, horses live in swamps because they can't build houses on that swamp land because it floods. So mm -hmm. all the dry spots where the horses should live is taken by humans. Taken by humans. So there's not big barns and stuff like I'm here with Sam Durham at the Farrier Centre yes. at Petaluma and the barns here are huge. Like to have 60, 60 performance horses in one barn does not happen at the Gold Coast. A big barn at the Gold Coast will be 10, maybe 10 horses in one spot. So we do lots of miles in between horses. You know, I, I shot a lot of race horses. I did a lot of stud horses in the Hunter Valley. Where I come from, so little town of Merriwell is three quarters an hour west of Scone. Scone is the equivalent of Kentucky. Every wealthy blue blood racehorse is bred in Scone in the Hunter Valley. And that's where I moved to. We work, we travel every day. We drive every day and drive home every day. When I was young, worked for my dad. And we travel to work and do all these stud horses, racehorses, and we go home. And, and when, when I got 
old enough to realise that there wasn't too many young ladies suitable in Merry War because most of the girls that had boyfriends, you know. So the blokes outnumber the girls about five to one. So when I got old enough to think, well, this is going to be boring life on my own, I moved to Scone because the population is about six and a half thousand and work was there, so it saved me travelling all the time. And, so the know. move was literally for a potential mate, but also there was work involved? <laughs> uh, well, not so much a mate. It was more so the chance of being a promiscuous young man, let's say. Like it was more, uh, you know, I'm, yeah. a, I'm a red-blooded Aussie. There's a... A uh, very good cowboy named Steve Gibson was a was a bronc riding champion in the states. He came over in one of El Paso, and he has a song called "A Red Blo- Red Blooded Aussie Boy," which mm. is it's not a very good song, but it's it About relates you. to all of us <laughs> as Australian blokes, ochre Australian blokes. We all relate to that song. So okay. yeah, we're not very very quiet, you know. That makes sense. Yeah, I mean, at that age too, I feel like you shouldn't be quiet. No, for sure. You're a long time not on this planet, so you might as well enjoy it while you're here, right? For so, sure. Yeah, I feel yeah. like that's kind of the Aussie way as well. I remember traveling to, I think I was in Colombia, somewhere in South America, and there were a few Aussie guys that were just like living it up, and I was like, you guys are a little wild. Yeah, no, so. well, that's, you know, that's a generational <laughs> thing. Australia, there's places in Australia that are still very much like that. Like, we, there's lots of cowboys and that sort of stuff in Australia, but in the built-up areas... They're very, very progressive. It's almost, you know, the political scene has changed a lot. That's global, but the political scene down there around the big centres is very, very moved to the left a long way, so. Yeah. And so did you ever do anything that was, I know you said you were on the track with math and marine biology, you said? Yeah, yeah. Did you ever get like internships or anything that wasn't farrier related in those fields? Never. Never? Never. Once I started, I I started working for my father and getting paid while I was waiting for my results. I got accepted in university and I deferred because I was getting paid. I was getting paid cash back then because I was waiting. And before I decided to sign up and do it, I was getting a paycheck and I was I was going out drinking and chasing skirt and having a great time. And I thought, well, if I do this, I've got to put my life on hold for four years. I got a university to become this. I no money and away from home and would have changed my lifestyle a lot. You know, I'm pretty lucky. I have no regrets in my life for not doing it because I've been really, really blessed in my life. My father was very good farrier, so he taught me very, very well. I was shoeing horses at 12 years old, so not well, but I was shoeing horses at 12 years old. So when you when you're born, pretty much with a hammer handle handed to you, that's all I pretty much know. You know, Sam got me out here to to do some clinic rolling clinics over the next couple of weeks. I bought my first laptop two weeks ago to do a PowerPoint presentation because most of the teaching I do is with a whiteboard or hands-on. So mm-hmm. I got my first laptop at So 50. you're not a techie person? Not at all. Is I've that an Australian bills. thing or this is a personal thing? No, this thing. is me. Okay. This is me. I, I'm not computer... My kids are computer whizzes. So they've helped me set up my first laptop at 51 so I can put my PowerPoint, my pictures I've downloaded on there. They've got to show me how to put the pictures from my phone to the computer so that I can do my PowerPoint, show me how to write the stuff in, the texting, all that stuff. I'm not. That's I, why people have kids nowadays, is to show them how to do things like that. Well, that's right. So, <laughs> yeah. Like we moved to the Gold Coast, I had a huge business in Hunter Valley. I was king of the world. You know, I had plenty of, make plenty of money. I had three or four guys working that were tradesmen working as contractors to me. So they'd come in and work, you know, three or four days, fortnightly, monthly, whatever. 
And I was making lots of money. I finished like two o'clock most days. I'd go and play golf or I'd go fishing or I had the lifestyle, you know, I was probably enjoying it too much. When I moved to Queensland, we, my wife and I made the conscious decision to move to Queensland so our kids had more access to university. That's it. There was no other reason. We, we said, well, we're going to move somewhere close to universities, which there's lots of in Queensland. In, in our southeast Queensland, there's lots of universities so they could do whatever they wanted. Where we lived, two and a half hours drive to the closest small uni that usually does school teaching. So they would have had to live away. And they've all, my girls are still studying. My son, my son's out working full time now. They've all taken that up and I'm really proud of them. Like it's a great thing that, but it was hard. We've moved away. It's you know, eight to 10 hours drive from all our family and friends. So it was tough and it's still tough. We've been there 12 and a half years. It's still very tough being there because being a huge community, people are very insulated. They don't want to go out and be friendly with people. Like the friends I've got now, I'm lucky where we got married and had children. My wife and kids are all born Scone based hospital. So it's a mining town. There's horse farms and, and coal mining. Most of the parents there now work in mining and it's weekend about it's shift work. So through our lifestyle or our life choices of not working, I don't work weekends. My dad used to work weekends and work away all the time. So I used to see him on a Sunday morning, he's grumpy and tired and, mm -hmm. and then he'd go back and work away. And so I made the conscious decision not to work weekends. I still don't, but I end up coaching lots of my kids sporting teams because the other parents are doing week about, so it's very hard for them to coach. They do 12 and a half hour shifts in the mines, their nights or days. So they can't coach during the week or the weekends. So you took it on. I took it on because, and if I'd worked weekends, I wouldn't have had that opportunity, which being self-employed, I worked for my father for six and a half years. So four years indentured apprenticeship, two and a half years after that. And then I went out on my own. I was working on my own at 26. I had my own business at 26. Do you remember that moment that you made the decision, like I'm gonna go off on my own now? Uh, well, my father was, he's quite set in his ways. I am too, I'm very black and white. I'm, I said to Sam and the boys, I'm the most honest person they will meet this week because i just very black and white. My wife says, I'm too black and white. There's got not enough gray area. So will people know where they stand? Well, that's why you're married to her. Sometimes I feel like one partner is the black and white brain and one partner is the gray brain. Oh, for sure. Help each other kind of maneuver through life. For sure. And without <laughs> my wife, God knows where I'd be at the moment because my wife has kept me grounded all the way through. And we have you know, hot and cold and everyone does. But my father, he's probably worse than me. So it was getting to the point after he put me through my time and he was slowing down, wearing out, very physical. He used to shoot lots of racehorses, you know, cold, 16 horses a day sort of stuff. And he was wearing out. So mid-50s, he put me through my time. And so me going out my own was more because we were... Our work was drying up because he, I and mean, there wasn't enough work in his business for both of us. Now I was a tradesman because apprentices don't get paid very much. So when you're a tradesman, you, you get, you know, four times the money, let's say. So the business wasn't sustaining both of our incomes at that level, which, you know, that's just progression of life, I guess. I was keen, you know, I'm, I was married at 25. I got my first child on the ground when I'm 26. My wife's a bit younger. So when you have responsibilities of marriage, mortgage, children, get off your butt and go and do it. Yeah. I built my business up and I, I subcontracted to one guy a couple of days a week. I had my own business. When we first got married, I used to work night shift at local abattoir as well. I shoot horse in the daytime. I would start 
night shift at 2, 2 p.m. in the afternoon. We work, no, four, sorry, 4 p.m. and work till 2 p.m. Uh, in the morning. I'd go home and I had four hours sleep. I was going riding, I was going to ride young race horses, and then I'd go shoe horses. Then I go home and have a shower and I go, and it was tiring. Oh, it was again hard. and again and again. It was hard. It was really, really hard. And then one of the farriers had a disagreement with some of his clientele and I got an opportunity. My father had worked for them previously, so they knew who yeah. I was and they knew my work ethic and they knew what I could do. So, And it all blossomed from there. So yeah. at 26, I was working for myself and uh, by 27, I was working as much as I wanted and I was knocking back work and... It's surreal at that age because you think you're gonna, you know, you're gonna take on the world. Yep. And yeah. I did. You're invincible at that age for sure. And did, I was. Did yeah. And did you do anything in terms of and even currently where you take care of your body so that it doesn't <laughs> crumble when you're older? Yeah, well, I have a very good masseuse. So I go and have a mass massage every couple of weeks. Even back then. Back then, you know, I had a uh, mate of mine, Peter Spokes, was a vintage taekwondo. He used to go and fight for Australia in Asia. And he was massage therapist as well. So we were very good friends, man. Cool. He, he used to give me lessons in high school. I used to go and have taekwondo lessons. And he pranged a bike and broke his back. So he got into Fire. massage therapy. Yeah. So I used to go and have a massage with him every week. And we talk, talk shop and had a great old time. We're still friends. He's still a good friend of mine. He lives in Scone now. But I, I've been very lucky very lucky physically I've had a few little injuries and stuff but with my work you know I've had both elbows hyperextended by stallions kicking out and trying to hang on trying to the bravado you know trying to hang on to them instead of just letting it go and picking it back up you try and be you're not going to win that battle you're not going to win against a thoroughbred stallion that's you know that's 800 kilos and he wants to let let go of my foot you just let go of his foot but mm. you know it wasn't both elbows at the same time same stallion about six months apart young and silly you know you're trying out out you can't out strong a horse that big but yeah he was by a horse called Masque. Masque was one of the best two-year-old racehorse sires in, in australia and my father showed Masque when i was a little infant and he used to say like Masque would eat you he would try and drag you under his back feet and lay down and lash out he was a big strong horse the horse that hyperx centered both elbows was a son of his and what he described to me, I never met Masque, but what he described to me, this horse was nearly identical in personality. Ooh. Yeah. But he wasn't much of a stain producing offspring. But. Yeah. And so starting off on your own, you're 26. What was the hardest thing when starting on your own? The hardest thing on my own was probably pricing myself in the marketplace. So I'm making a living without being too cheap. I soon worked it out pretty quick because... With the Blue Blood Thoroughbreds, there's so much money. If you're good at your job, I did a lot of uh, correction work on babies. That was that was my big go. Babies, you know, the growth plates in babies' lower legs close up three and a half months roughly. So no one wants a, a thoroughbred at the sales. They don't want a yearling with, that's, that's got... Messed up already? That's messed up. So yeah. I did a lot of lot of correction work. And that was there was only a couple of us in the Hunter Valley at the time were doing that stuff. So it was. You found your niche pretty quick. I then. found my niche pretty quick, and I was, you know, I was, like I said, I was playing golf and going fishing, and I had the I good had, life. I had the good life, yeah. I was paying lots of tax, paying lots of tax, but you know, that's just part and parcel of having a good business, I suppose. But I probably, if in hindsight, I wish I'd had a lot better accountant than I did because I was paying more tax than I should have done. But yeah, I was going to ask if the business side of things came easy, but it sounded like you hired out and had an accountant for. I did that in the kind early days. I, I soon learned 
In the in that working time is when the GST got introduced into Australia, which is a sales tax, which you have here. So we have a GST, which is 10% on top of whatever our base rate is. And my accountant used to handle that. Now I've, I do all that stuff myself because because of my math background, I'm, I was very easy at that sort of stuff. And I just get my accountant now to go through every 12 months and make sure that I'm not, not doing the wrong thing. You <laughs> yeah. Know? They'll come down hard on you. If you're making mistakes, they will come down hard on you and you get fined and they can, I think they can fine you back about six years back home. So, oh. yeah, no, you don't want to make mistakes in the first place. Cause I mean, here you don't want to make mistakes either, but, you know, it happens. Well, one year I had, because we pay our tax quarterly down there, most of us pay our tax quarterly, and I've been paying lots of tax quarterly, and at the end of the year I got a bill for 45 grand on top of what I'd already paid. So oh. I'm up for 95 grand tax for the year. To go and find 45 grand and keep paying that quarterly tax, it was tough because, you know, we've got three little kids, we got, got our first mortgage. You and got to eat? Yeah, I didn't have 45 grand laying around that I can just go and write a check out and say, here's, sorry, I made a mistake. So I, I'm very conscious of that. You get through it. I got through <laughs> it. I'm still here. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And do you know much about the differences between the racing community there versus here? What the differences are? Not really. This is my first trip to the mainland of America. Ever? Ever. Cool. We went to Hawaii for a honeymoon. We had no money like 26 years ago this, this October. We went to be scrimped and saved. I was working two jobs and we, we went to Hawaii and my wife's girlfriend was a travel agent. So she's organized the first day we're, we're jet lagged because it's about... I think it's about nine hours changing time, roughly. We're jet lagged and we're tired, and she's organised for us to go to these tours. Uh-oh. You get free breakfast, and they try and sell you all these tours to go around Hawaii. And we're sitting there we're eating breakfast on on the house, and and it was great. And they said, "Oh, which tour are you going to buy?" And I said, "Well, we've got no money. We're just going to hang around, hang around Waikiki for a week, and then go home. Like we've never been outside. Of, I'd never been outside of Australia. So this is the first trip I've been to mainland America. Okay. Ever. I've been to Canada and I've been to a few other places, but." How's your trip so far? It's it's different. It's different to home. It's very different to home. Like we, we flew into San Fran and had a couple of days in San Fran to get over the travel. And Did she, your wife come with you? Yeah, no, my oh, wife's cool. here. Yeah, she's okay. here too. Yeah, yeah no, she's check, been checking out Petaluma and she's she's doing the washing today because for anyone that travels, that's one of the most expensive things you can do is get your washing done at a motel. <laughs> so <laughs> she's doing she's down the laundry mat getting the washing done today while I'm... While I'm Shoeing horses with Sam and the boys, and but Pier Thirty Nine, we're eating lunch on Father's Day, and there's two guys shooting at one another out of a car. Is on the news at guns Pier Thirty Nine the same day day we're having lunch, and like at home, guns are very regulated at home, right? So if you have a drive-by shooting at home, it's usually three a.m. and it's dark, and it's usually drug-related, not not lunchtime and good on Father's Day. I feel like that's not super common here hopefully i mean i don't come across that i hope i never do yeah no would but me too like it was just like and i i when i was a child my brother was a very very good um, clay pigeon shooter and as a child like we we used to go hunting Uh, in australia lots of young guys have pig dogs and stuff because at home the wild pig population there's an export market to germany the germans love our wild pigs so as young blokes, we do that on weekends to make make money and stuff. And people letting off firearms in the street is it's a little bit different to what we're used to. But I'm not. I very. I still am a very avid safe gun user. So it was just a bit like, welcome Shock. to America, guys. Here Yikes. you go. Yeah. So, and we didn't know what was happening. It was just it was on that news that so night. So you didn't actually see it or hear it. That's didn't good. see it or hear yeah. it. But we're in still. Pier 39 eating our lunch on Father's Day, Mm-mm. 
and it was on the news that night. There's a shooting at midday in Pier 39. So oh, good. I'm glad you guys were not involved. In Thank you. Way. Yeah, I appreciate ah. I appreciate not getting shot at. First couple of days I'm here. Yeah. So with watching Sam and his crew, what have you noticed is the major difference other than the barns and the hugeness of kind of the barns here in terms of feet? What do you notice? Farriers like Sam and myself are roughly the same age. We've been shooting roughly the same amount of time and we are very much about horse welfare. So farriers worldwide, and I've traveled a lot, like we're shooting, you know, Europe last year, I taught in China in, in cool. Beijing in 2000 and stuff. A lot of farriers worldwide with best interests at heart, shoe horses very, very similar. We might tweak things a little bit. And the horses I found here, their feet are in fantastic order. The boys do a good job. We're tweaking the way I do things, interacting with him. And that's the main reason he got here is because a lot of farriers, if you work on your own for any amount of time without someone observing and getting someone to look at your work, a lot of times you put the winkers on and think, I'm the man, I'm doing everything I'm the man. And when you get in a situation where you have a problem with a horse and then veterinarian gets involved and these days with digital slides and stuff, they can tell you, they can show you an imbalance that might have caused what you've done. And I like to think that if farriers get together and, and criticize, not criticize, that's the wrong word. Just if overview. We, over, yeah. yeah if, if we look at one of those work and say, I would do it like this, I don't usually say that's wrong. I usually say, I would do it like this. So a new client rings me, for instance, and they say, oh, what do you think of the previous farrier's work? And I, I never throw anyone on the bus. I always say, he's doing the best he can. I wasn't here when he shot the horse. I wouldn't set it up the same. If you're happy for me to change it, I will. This is what I would do. Yeah. Exactly. So we, Sam invited me here to look at their work and show them how I would do things a little bit differently. And we've worked on a few little things. There's not major changes anywhere because these guys, like I said, they're lifelong farriers like myself. They're doing their best like I am. If you're longevity in a career, we all put the horse's welfare before anything else. And we make a living and we do all that. We're not trying to hurt a horse by making a mess of its feet on, on purpose. Sometimes it's our experience level that gets us, uh, brings us unstuck. So I'm having a great time with these guys. I've been with him three days. And we're at three different areas, so there's three different environments. Like today, the farm we're at today, some horses are in boxes and some horses are in turnout, small turnout, 100 metres apart, so 30 yards apart. And those horses' feet from that environment to this environment, the box, are completely different just in that area. So we take all that into consideration. I learned a lot yesterday. We went to some school horses, a really rocky, abrasive surface. And... I'm look, I watch the guys trim the horses and I think, well, I have to adjust my trimming technique to theirs because if I trim them like I do at home in the softer, wetter environment, these horses aren't going to be able to walk. And they're, they're school ponies doing lots of lessons and stuff. So you've got to be adaptable and also keep your balance primers in the back of your mind while you're doing it. So none of us want to walk away and say, well, I've blamed that horse. Right. You know, If well, we're doing our job properly, you can't honestly say, Oh, well, I've lamed that horse, but it's going to be better in three weeks' time, you know. Yeah, I recorded with a farrier a few weeks ago that brought it to my attention, which is an obvious thing, that no farrier goes into being a farrier wanting to be a bad farrier. No. Like, nobody is like, I'm going to be a farrier as my career, and I'm going to be bad at it, but I'm going to make money. Yeah. Like, all of you are doing, like you're saying, doing the best you can, and again, sometimes ego gets in the way, sometimes lack of wanting to continue educating yourself, that sort of thing. 
Do you come across that with the younger farrier generations where they make money and then don't continue their education? For sure, mm-hmm. for sure. Europe, there's lots of farriers. Australia, there's pockets where there are lots of farriers, but there's also lots of horses. So Australia is about 26 million people roughly. On the last census I did a couple of years ago, there was 900 farriers in all of Australia. They oh, wow. put, put farrier on their census. So there's not a lot of farriers. In, where I am, there's lots of farriers, but there's lots of guys, they try and control their marketplace by being cheap. And they're just hanging still. They're not, they're not for continued professional development. They're not for animal welfare. They're about getting paid and get the next horse. You know, there's, there's guys around that are starting work at three o'clock in the morning and finish at eight o'clock at night so they can do all as many horses as they can. And unfortunately, I do come across that with younger guys. To get market share, they've got to be cheap. So it's not about experience. A lot of guys finish their four-year apprenticeship and they go out and they, instead of working with guys and continuing to learn, so you, you finish your trade and you've got a four-year, so a base level, like Farriers here, go to, a lot of them go to shoeing schools. You've got a base level of knowledge. So you get gain experience working with other people with more experience than you, or you just make a lot of mistakes. And in making mistakes, something comes against the horse's welfare. So uh, unfortunately back home, a lot of guys, they get signed off and they want to be the man making shitloads of money. And unfortunately, the horse is the one that pays. So, But that, I, that route also usually gets found out because of the fact that the horses are going to be lame or that sort of thing, right? Uh, to a certain degree. Like back home, I do a lot of high, high-end performance horses is my go. I did lots of stud work and, and babies and racehorses was my main go on the hunter because that's what they had there. When I moved to Queensland, I adapted. I did lots of racehorses and I got into performance horse market because I enjoy the challenge of trying to fix horses that aren't quite going well. And the high performance, is it more dressage, hunter jumper, both? Exactly. Yeah, adventures, show jumpers, dressage horses. I shod right. I don't shoot too many gallopers anymore because I'm just getting a bit old and I, I don't need to. I've what are gallopers? Race horses. Race horses. Okay. Yeah. So I don't I don't have to do that anymore. When your kids are young, you've got to do what you're told, smile and nod and take the money and feed your kids and put a roof over their head. I'm lucky now. My my youngest one is 21 in a couple of weeks' time, so I don't have to do that. They're financially independent now. But the younger guys coming through. They do drag the trade backwards a little bit because they just want to take the money. And they've got families, and I'm same as I was back then, 20 years ago, I get that. But instead of asking for advice, they will make a mistake and then they'll blame someone else. And it's sad because like in, I know in a regulated industry like in, in England, say, it's very regulated there. They have to do so much CPD a year to keep their ticket. So progressive farriers like Sam and myself, we try and learn as much as we can. Like I'd go to farrier competitions now, like I can't keep up with the young guys, they're too fit and too strong and they practice a lot, but I like to go and compete against them because someone is judging and someone can say, oh, I think your work is lacking here or wherever. So I'm, I'm not got the winkers on, like I said before, and and thinking I'm the man and I, no one else can do what I can do. Because there's lots of lots of really good farriers, female and male, around the world that could probably shoe circles around me. But I like to go and get my work critiqued by them. You know, farrier competition, you pay to go and someone critiques your work and you take it on board, you, you go home with the cranks and say, well, <laughs> they don't know what they're talking about, which 
that doesn't usually happen. No. Well, and if you're if you're paying to go to the competitions to be evaluated, then you're open to being evaluated. Most people, I'm guessing. Oh sure. They don't go, and then someone critiques them, and they're like, "Well, f that. I don't like that." Exactly. So, so, so the young guys have talked me about that, that. Unfortunately, doing that, they don't go to competitions. They don't get they anyone to look at the their work. work. And get home. They yeah. just collect their money and go home. And unfortunately, I do take over some of them jobs. You know, from from vet recommendations and stuff, or most of my work base is client recommendations. Word yep. Yeah, word of mouth. And the best clients come from word of mouth because if I work for Joe Blow, and then I go back to my client that's recommending and say, "Well, that person was a ass," and it gets back to them because it's usually a friend of theirs. Everyone knows somebody, and that's yeah. right. So they don't want their friend thinking that they've been rude to the farrier that's their farrier because then there's a bit of a friction between them. So most of them only recommend you to people that they know are going to pay and people are going to be well-mannered and all that sort of stuff. So Yeah. Do you feel like in Australia there is quite a bit of body work done on horses? Where I am, there are lots and lots and lots of those things happen because it's a wealthy area. So wealthy area drags the people there to try and make a living. And I get that. But we come from I come from a, a, a very modest family not much money and my father like we never had saddle fitters chiros any of that stuff like we used to do our own dental work i can remember really <laughs> i can remember i can remember as a like a five-year-old kid holding a horse with a gag in its mouth while he's trying to knock knock wolf teeth out of this horse's mouth and the thing whopped me up the side of the head with the steel gag in its mouth and then knocked me out Woo! so we like small and he's talk about saddle fitters and stuff so like this is very rural don't get me wrong we don't, I wouldn't do that anymore. But no. You check your saddle fit around the withers of your horse, you know, a couple of fingers under the front of your saddle and make, and oh, this is tight. The other one said, well, put another saddle cloth under it. Don't be stupid. Like, it's not, so, but I do find now, like we were just talking about this a little while ago, because a lot of horses have high-low conformations. The, the DNA of genetics in horses has changed a lot in the last, you know, <laughs> we, Sam and I joked about it, you know, we have lots of warm bloods in Australia and the Germans have very, very good warm bloods. Don't get me wrong, they're very competitive. They win lots. The Poms have lots of good warm bloods. They don't sell us their good ones. They might sell us sperm for impregnation of their mares, frozen sperm. They don't sell us their top quality horses because they don't want us winning the gold medal, right? So lots of horses have high-low conformations and stuff. And we were, I was showing the boys how I set up high-lows a little bit differently to them today. And I often say to my clients, when I have a high-low and I change the mechanics in the front end of a horse, so that there's the scapula, muscles around the scapular bone at the top, on an upright foot, you get more pronounced muscle at the top. So when I change the mechanics at the bottom of the foot, it changes the muscle at the top. And often you say, well, you need to get your saddle to come and check this because the muscles are now more even across the top of the scapula, your saddle's not gonna fit like it did. Because they, oh, my horse is off. So, well, you need to try and check your saddle fit more than more than anything else. You know, everyone has their place doing that stuff. Like all the muscle manipulators, the, the chiros, the acupuncture and stuff. I have a very good veterinarian friend from Switzerland. She came out and worked with me a few years ago before COVID for a month. And she's a very good vet. And she does that stuff. Like as a veterinarian, she does that stuff. You know, if you get the right people, you can get lots of results doing that. But it, it, it helps to shop around and, and ask your friends. Ask your friends that have more experience in the horse units than you and they can head you in the right recommend, direction. Yeah. Just like recommended farrier, they can re recommend you someone that has worked for them and has helped their horse because the health welfare is it, right? So That's something I like to ask farriers too, is if you feel like the vets, farriers and body workers kind of work together, 
And it sounds like in, in Australia, too, some do and some don't. Oh, for sure. I think that's all around that's the world. That's everywhere. Yeah. It is everywhere. Do you feel like the common horse owner is well-educated on feet? No. Simple answer, no. Most people that have horses, where I am anyway, like different in different industries, right? You know, like a reigning trainer will have a different perspective to a person. Dressage, yeah. A, well, yeah, my, my, like I do a lot of Grand Prix dressage horses. Okay. There's not many of them in Queensland where I am. So I do a lot, I do majority of them in my part of the world. And they can tell you their horse is off 5%. Like they can ride, they know if their horse is off 5% sitting in the saddle. As opposed to the pony club mum that's interesting, a woman that, that's daughter was 12 and she was jumping two foot six. And she wanted stud holes all around, all four feet. And I said, why? Oh, because such and such, her friend has them on. I said, but you're jumping two foot six, your child is learning to ride. And they say, well, no, but she's very competitive. I said, you're missing the point. Your child's learning to ride. It's more important the child learns to ride than a blue ribbon, right? No, 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 she wants to win. I said, yeah, but you know, if you put, if you put uh, corkins on a horse, screwing corkins on a horse, all four, and it's the wrong surface. I said, you know, you can snap passings on a horse really quickly because it locks their foot to the ground, and if they're doing rollbacks, say, not knowing what they're doing riding, they snap a passing, and then, oh, look, you've killed the horse. There goes the riding career. There, yeah. yeah, there goes the riding career, and, and then, oh, what happened? Well, uh, and then they're looking to put it back on me because I put the corkins in because they wanted it. So sometimes you've got to have a little bit of little bit of horsemanship helps in that situation and and respect from the client that your opinion matters I think that's a big part where sometimes is lacking where like when I get my horse's feet done I respect whoever I'm hiring as my farrier to say if all of a sudden the farrier's like hey something's looking a little off let's do a bar shoe or let's do whatever other contraption he comes up with I trust the professional as my farrier, but I'm also someone to network and yeah. listen to reputations. Where that, in that instance, maybe she could have approached you and said, hey, what do you think about putting these shoes on this pony? Exactly. And then you could be like, well. Asking a question promotes conversation. When you get handed a script and say, do this, that I'm just a laborer for that person, which I'm, at my age and my experience level, I'm no one's labourer, so I usually say, well, you get someone else. I just yeah. walk away. Asking a question promotes conversation, and if you throw me a script and say, do it like this, lots of these people have very expensive horses, but they don't have many of them. They don't, like these farms with 60 horses on them, we don't have them back home, so people don't have a backup horse. If I make a boo-boo, they can just go and grab Nettie and, and swap them over and, you know, to get a Grand Prix horse like the, the higher end people down home they talk about from intermediate level to Grand Prix takes three years to build up that extra muscle memory. You know, a Grand Prix horse does a lot of work. It's very physical work. So since digital slides come in, digital x-rays come in the last couple of years, everyone has a digital x-ray that's a veterinarian, which is, that's what they do. And it's great. It's a great diagnostic tool. It's a good real picture. It's, it's, and it's instant. You know, I'm, I'm back in the day where vets were having to, They'd have to go back into their wet lab and had to have slides like the old movies and they'd put them on the white thing and you'd have a look. And you wait it out in the dark room. That's right. And if, if the x-rays were terrible, like they'd have to come redo it and time consuming and all that. Now you've got instant, you can sit there, and click the button, 30 seconds later it's on the, on the screen and you can have a look, which is great. When I balance a horse, so uh, balancing a horse is about individual needs, okay? 
So the individual horse has different balance to the next one and front and back, like they're different things as well. And, you know, Sam's got me out here teaching and I talk about the breakdown of collagen fibres, right? It's part of what I teach people because collagen, believe it or not, can't be replaced. You know, we talk about degenerative suspensory desmitis, right? So the old horses that drop down because their suspensory ligament collagen fibres are breaking down, right? You never see that in a two-year-old horse. It's always in an older horse, just like a person with wrinkles. So a lot of that on an x-ray slide, look at a lateral slide, a lot of that comes from that breakdown of fibres, and not just suspensory, it's a breakdown of fibres. So we've got to put all this instead of saying it should be between four and seven degrees. So there are shoeing techniques that have been around. Like I said, my father's 80. There's shoeing techniques we've had for a long time that are being forgotten because of all the social media driven diagnostic stuff. Do you feel like there's quite a few women farriers where you are? There's a couple of, couple of young female farriers that are friends of mine. There's there's uh, one young lass down there. She's, I'm guessing, mid-30s. You shouldn't talk about women's age, but she's got, <laughs> she's got a couple of teenage kids and, and she's starting a female draft horse shoeing team called the Sooty Blondes. They have a Facebook page called the Sooty Blondes. And they're doing their best to promote girls in the industry. You know, I went to trade school 30-odd years ago, and there was a mature age last then that I went through trade school with. She was doing a mature age apprenticeship, and I think she's probably retired now. But we don't have as many female farriers in Australia as there are around the rest of the world. But I'm not the bloke that's going to say to a woman, you can't do this, because I've got a son and two beautiful daughters, and I tell them since they were babies that they can do whatever they want if they get off their backside and have a crack. Mm-hmm. But no one's going to hand it to them. And shoeing horses is one of them. You can't, uh, you can't be a farrier thinking someone's going to sh- just drop out of the sky and say, tap you on the shoulder, and all of a sudden you're a very good farrier because it's hard work and it's repetition of doing best practice to get better at something. So, like I said, that's why I compete. That's why I make a lot of shoes at home. I get in the forge with my, my apprentice. He's only just 17 and a half. He will be a superstar if he keeps going because he's so driven. So a lot of young people these days aren't driven to chase their dream and put in the work. Let's go into the question. So what is something within the community, and it could be farrier community, horse community, whatever, that you'd like to see evolve or change? And then how can you help with that if you're not already? I would like to see the horse industry be more sensible feeding their horses. Short chain sugars in horses is the worst thing Acidosis in horses, so hind, you can Google that. Acidosis is hind end gut problems. My father used to say these horses should be ballerinas, not cart horses. And that's true. Horses that are overweight, like obese horses, people think that their performance horse should be like a fat, gross thing. And hind end gut from, from sugars, acidosis is hind end gut problems, affects so many horses down under. Oh, but we got it scoped, they'll say, and there's no problems with it. It's got no ulcers or anything. Well, well, you can't scope the hind end of a horse's gut unless you stick a camera from the back end up. And that does not happen anywhere that I know of. So they look at it in their, in their, you know, in their stomach, there's no ulcers. But you get so many horses reactive, and it's because they're feeding them too much sugar. So there's so much sugar. That is the main thing I would change in the horse industry, is people not being so stupid with what they feed their animals. You know, you get all these advertising and, and stuff with all these sugary treats and shit. We used to give our horses a carrot, and that's half it. a carrot, yeah. or, or an apple core. That's as much sugar as it gets, not, you know, one lass I used to work for, 
she used to think giving a horse a five-gallon bucket of molasses was a sports drink after every lesson. And to the point, she, she, she was giving lessons to one of my, one of my clients who's a, who's a superstar young rider, and a horse got laminitis. And the horse was getting better and then back into work after a spin of a laminitis week. And she started giving this horse, who was bordering on EMS anyway, giving this horse a five-gallon bucket of molasses. And I said to her, you need to stop giving your horse molasses. It's straight sugar. It's not a sports drink. It is straight sugar. Oh, you're just scaremongering. I said, well, you're trying to kill this you're horse. You're just what? Scaremongering? I'm scaremongering this lass. You're trying to, like, this is what Put I teach her. Put fear in her? Put fear into her. And I said, well, we've saved this horse's life once. And guess what? Four weeks later, this horse tipped over again with laminitis A again. And so we had to go through all the rigmarole of trying to save this horse's life because people have been silly. And so the biggest thing I would change with horses is their feeding regimes and get away from giving them sugary treats and all that other, other garbage that horses should not eat. Horses forage on grass. You know, wild horses eat grass. Professor Chris Pollitt is, is a world-renowned laminitis specialist. He's retired now. He's on social media. Like, he's 80 years old, same age as my father. 80 years old, and he does studies on Brumbies out in the west of Australia. He does lots of are studies. Are Brumbies wild horses in Australia? Brumbies are like Mustangs, yeah. Mustangs, yeah. If you look at him on, on social media, he's out there for photographing all these Brumbies and stuff, and they all have ribs visible, and they're mm. all healthy because they forage on grass, and they do exercise, and they're not, you know, they're not fat and shiny. They are shiny, and they're healthy, but you can see the horse's ribs. And a healthy horse has ribs poking out the sides, not a big, fat, obese-looking thing. And so that's that. Would, that's what I would change in the industry. And it sounds like the way that you're doing that is trying your best to educate when possible. For sure. If, <laughs> yeah. if, people if they're listen, open to it. If they're open to listening to me, it's, it is hard because we do have a client base and we've got to be very careful because you, you, know, you can offend someone very quickly. Mm -hmm. But, you know, laminitis is sickening disease in horses. It's yeah. sickening. Well, now you get to ask me one question, which is fun because you know nothing about me. So is there a question that pops up for you? Have you been to Australia before? I have not, and it's on my bucket list. Yeah. I There's a part of me that's a little bit scared to go because of all of the animals that could kill me. <laughs> um, but it is on my bucket list to yeah. go. Do you have a recommendation if I went? where I should go? Australia is a very big place. Mm -hmm. a, lot, a lot of Americans don't realise how big Australia is, I don't think. Like, Tasmania is an island of Australia, and even Tasmanians, they, they'll get their, they'll, they're gonna do, they call it the loop, so they're gonna drive around Australia, they call it the big loop. And they'll get on the ferry and the car and the caravan, come across the ferry to Melbourne, and they get like five hours down the road, because you can drive from Tassie from one end to the other in seven hours. They'll get seven hours in and think, Holy shit, turn around and go home because it, <laughs> it blows them away. So, yeah, you know, there's like the Gold Coast is one of the best places, and that's why we chose to move there. But right. Australia is, is so vast, and there's so much to see. The Barrier Reef is one of the wonders of the world. You know, right. the Blue Mountains runs all down the eastern seaboard. There's so many nice places to go. But for Americans that want to want to have, have the, the experience, have the opportunity because of the exchange rate, the exchange rate is killing me because. We're getting 60 cents in the dollar. So Americans that want to come to Australia, they can come there and have a great time and it costs them very little to have a great time down under. But there's so much to see that I couldn't recommend one place. But, you know, there are some wonderful places. And there's lots and lots of history. Like the Aboriginal community was in Australia for 60,000 years before white men come there. So 
there's lots lots and lots of history there but they're not they're not like European history where you have buildings that are you know the Vatican City's two two thousand years old like it's not like that sort of history it's it's natural history that's been there Ayers Rock you know uh, Uluru it's, it's gone back to its Aboriginal name Uluru is is a natural wonder of the world as well the barrier reef we have lots of things down there that and people probably don't realise you know. <laughs> yeah, I'd rather the natural stuff. I'm more into the. Me too. The like I'm, 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 like I said, I, I go back to the welfare of the horses. Well, it's the same as me. I like to have a natural, a fairly natural life. I do enjoy having a cold beverage at the end of the day, but I, I, I'm not a stress head. I'm not any of those sort of things. I think you know we're here for a short time, so why not enjoy it while we're here? So if you get the chance to travel, and you can afford to travel, and you, and you're not gonna, you know break anyone's heart doing it well why not yeah what are you most excited about with this trip to the states i love gaining knowledge as much as sharing knowledge so we're teaching trade school at home you know there was a first year apprentice taught me how to put it i saw him doing a heel on a horseshoe differently to how i did it and i said where did you learn that and he said oh my boss taught me so where'd your boss learn that and he said well oh, some bloke called bob marshall right and I don't know Bob Marshall personally. Sam Durham and his boys learnt to make shoes off Bob Marshall. And they do heels the same as this kid taught me. So I'm really excited about this trip because I, I learn stuff off other people. Like as I said yesterday, I learnt off these guys about the different environment. Environment's so important, horses' feet, for, for health of their feet. I've learnt a different thing technique yesterday because the environment there is nothing like I've done anywhere in the world. So, and that's, that's only you know, 30 minutes up the road mm -hmm. here. So sharing knowledge is great and and the welfare of the horse is so important to me. So I'm really excited about this trip. One, I get to look around your beautiful country, or some of it. I'm only here for a couple of weeks, but some You're of it. You're staying in California? Uh, California, uh, tomorrow we're off to Plymouth to do a, a shoeing school, Pacific Coast shoeing school. We're doing a two-day clinic there. Then we're flying from Sacramento to Oklahoma City and Dusty Franklin's world-renowned educator and farrier, like world-renowned. When Dusty rang me and invited me to come to a clinic for him, it was like, wow. Just another level, so I'm going to go to Oklahoma City and we're driving back through. I have a friend in Texas that I met through Facebook and he has one of my handmade darling on hammers and he made me a, a Damascus knife that's sitting at home in a glass Ooh. cabinet. So I'm going to go and meet him face-to-face. -face. We're going to Dallas and have a look around Dallas and and sneak off home but it's hard working for yourself is hard to have too much time away like you know I talked to Sam Durham about have you been outside of America and he said oh, I've been to Canada I've been South uh, South America but that's it all the Americas but so it is very hard when you when you're self-employed it's very hard to be away from your client base for a long time but like Sam's got a lot bigger business than me so yeah. for me I've got a very good young apprentice so he's covering for me and a couple of friends are covering for me on the way, but it, it is hard. That's the hardest part about traveling. But with airplanes and stuff these days, the world is so easy to get around. It's mm -hmm. tiring, but it's so easy to get around. So Yeah, it's doable. I'm looking forward to going to Oklahoma. Like they, they probably talk a bit different to the people in California, I'm guessing. And <laughs> I'm guessing in Texas they're going to be a little bit different again. But Oklahoma, like in Minko and, Minko and Oklahoma, is only a three-hour drive from Dallas. So we're going to do that and head our way back through and... Awesome. Yeah. Well, thank you for chatting with me. I'm glad I was able to sit with you. Thank you very much for asking me. <laughs>
Don't forget to tune in every Monday morning for a new episode. Follow us on Facebook and on Instagram. It always helps to leave a review on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or on Facebook. And if you or someone you know wants to sponsor an episode, please visit www.stableconnectionsthepodcast.com. See you next week. Stable Connections is sponsored by Bay Mare Designs. Bay Mayor Designs is a full-service branding and web design studio built for equestrian-owned businesses. Alicia combines her experiences within the design space and her passion for the horse world to create stunning, strategic designs that help you grow your small business. Learn more about how you can attract your dream clients through branding and web design. She services clients nationwide. Please visit www baymaredesign.com and receive 10% off when you mention Stable Connections, the podcast. Stable Connections is sponsored by InStride Productions, videography and photography with the equestrian in focus. Whether you need marketing content or memories that last a lifetime, InStride Productions will capture your moment. Please visit www.instrideproductions.com.